You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Steve Coleman. Have you ever watched a courtroom proceeding, a drama on TV? It just crackles with excitement. And usually there's that big payoff of justice at the end. But have you ever watched a real-life attorneys at work? I think Warren and Estella and uh, David can give you a, a better picture of that. But they work very differently. It's much less exciting, but really interesting as you notice how they build a proper case one step at a time. In fact, in order to introduce an object into evidence, an attorney may begin by asking a series of questions like these. Attorney, do you recognize the exhibit number 10? Witness, yes, it's my brother's hunting knife. How do you know it's your brother's hunting knife? Because he engraved his initials here on the bottom of the handle. Is exhibit 10 in the same condition or similarly, substantially similar condition as the last time you viewed it? Witness, yes. So they're required to build this case a little bit at a time and, and reinforce the entire foundation of it so that um, a verdict can be rendered on that and justice is done. Well, that's kind of what Paul is doing here in chapter 4 in Romans. Uh, first of all, he, in our last three, uh, last three messages, Julie Coleman was uh, presenting... Romans 1 through 3 in the last three weeks. And, and we learned in the first two weeks that, that Paul was describing Jew and Gentile. And there are a lot of differences between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, there's probably, uh, in God's, in, in terms of how things, uh, God worked things out in the Old Testament, a great deal of difference. But in Romans 1 and 2, Paul says there's some things that are the same. And uh, several, in fact. One is that God's revealed himself to both. The Jews had it through the law very clearly. But Paul says, but wait, also the Gentiles have seen it clearly in, in nature. They've seen it clearly in uh, their own conscience. They are without excuse, both groups. And both groups have sinned. Not just simply sinned, but corruption was allowed in. And their hearts are corrupted. And uh, they are uh, running metaphorically away from God as fast as they can. And they're all under wrath. But then in chapter 3, last week, Julie was talking about Paul, again, describing bit by bit this righteousness that we can have. Justification, meaning being declared righteous, that we can have and that it comes freely to us. It's by faith, not by work. We get a free pass to, to uh, become righteous. So now in chapter 4, Paul starts off by saying, what, shall we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? He said, okay, let's take a look at Abraham as a case. And we're going to go through here and look at Abraham and he's going to reinforce many of the things he's already talked about. But you'll see by, by bit by bit, he's going to add to that understanding and really clarify what he's talking about. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul's quoting here from Genesis 15, the narrative account of Abraham. And we'll get back to that in a minute. Paul will work his way to it. But by saying this, making this statement, Paul is connecting what he's going to talk about about Abraham in this chapter with the very things that were in chapter 3. This free uh, opportunity to be justified, to become righteous by faith alone. So now, um, after connecting it like that, he... And, and making this statement, Abraham believed God and is credited to him for righteousness. What Paul does is then start to identify bits of this. And he says, um, first of all, let me explain to you what I mean by credited, he says. And he says this, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So what Paul's laying out for uh, his readers is the fact that if you have somebody working, in their mind is the notion that, hey, I'm working, so there's going to be some wage coming back. Particularly if there's, in any sense, an understood contract or even an implied contract here. And that work results in obligation. That this person receives something for that work. And what Paul says, he says, I'm not talking about obligation. When I say credited, I mean something different. And then what he's describing there is the person that doesn't work, but trusts in God. And he says, what happens there is, what comes to them is gift. And he says, that's what I mean by credited. So it was credited to Abraham for righteousness based on his belief. So he's, um, and now after he's defined this crediting, he now poses another question. He said, all right, you have that straight. Abraham believed God and that was credited as a free gift to him for righteousness. But he's anticipating and he says, okay, let's answer this question. When was Abraham credited with righteousness? He said, was it before or after he was circumcised? Because he's, he's driving into a, a key point with this. Well, we can go back and he gives the answer. And if you've got Romans 4 open, you can see it in one little statement. But let's go back to Genesis and look at the evidence. The evidence is in Genesis chapter 15, God appears to Abraham and talks about, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Abraham, he said, God had said this a couple of times before to Abraham. But on this occasion, Abraham says, uh, how's that going to work? Because right now my heir is, and I've forgotten the guy's name, but he had a uh, sort of a, 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 head, uh, a head employee that he had. And by law, his, if he is, dies heirless, then his, um, you know, all of the things that would normally come to Abraham get inherited by that person so he says uh, somebody else is in line and God said this man will not be your heir but a son coming from your own body will be your heir and he tells Abraham look up at the heavens and count the stars so shall your offspring be and 
the next verse, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay, fine and good. Where does circumcision come, come in? Well, at least 15 years later, we don't know for sure, but from the times that Abraham's age is listed in the narrative account, we know it's at least 15 years later, in chapter 17, circumcision was instituted. So Paul's point is, here's Abraham uncircumcised, and God saying, belief, faith in me, is what's credited for righteousness. And in case you're wondering, because we all think in terms of Abraham uh, about the great exercise of faith, you could call it effort, that he went through in following God's orders to sacrifice Isaac. Well, that came at least one year later, chronologically, in Genesis chapter 22. So Paul's point is, no work yet, no, no circumcision yet, no sacrifice or willingness to sacrifice Isaac yet. And Abraham believed God, believed what he said, believed what he promised, and that's what was credited to him for righteousness. Paul's point, I think, to those that were the original readers of this letter was that uh, to, to help give perspective, particularly to the Jews, who were very proud of circumcision and the uh, their, uh, their part in the kingdom of God as it was being worked out in the Old Testament and being the people of God. And as Paul writes later on in Romans, we're going to get to that section, chapter 9, still are the apple of God's eye. But, but what Paul's saying is really, back here in Genesis, God was already establishing the foundation for a faith... Um, a, a righteousness based on faith. And so what he does is he calls Abraham the father of all who believe. He's the father of the circumcised, Paul says, who, who walk in the faith that he had before circumcision, and he's the father of the Gentile because he showed the way of faith before he was circumcised. So he's the father of the uncircumcised too. That's what Paul says. Well, that's, that's this, this argument that he builds on this primary statement of Abraham being credited with righteousness. Paul makes a second point in here and sort of takes the argument from God's side to emphasize, or from God's perspective, to emphasize uh, how uh, this faith is, is not, has nothing to do with works, has nothing to do with what we do. And so he starts, um, he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. Now he says in another verse, a couple of verses before, he said, if, if the promise came because of works, it's worthless. But, he's, and he's, but he says in this verse, it can be guaranteed because it comes by faith. Well, what does Paul mean by that? I mean, why would it be worthless if, um, 
if there was a part that we played in it. Best thing I can picture it for myself is, um, I, I don't know if it's the age of our house, but it's sort of at a point where everything is falling apart. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's asking for thousands and thousands of dollars. So we've had a number of workmen in working on things. And, and I, um, so a workman will come in and will say, fix that. And so they'll, they'll come and they'll say, okay, well, I can replace that unit and that'll cost this much. And I'll say, well, can, can't you just fix that unit that's there, tweak it? And he said, well, I can do that, but I won't guarantee the work. Because somebody else did that. He says, I don't know how they put it in. I don't know um, the, the, the real issue there. I can tell you it's broken. And so if it's broken, if I put a new one in, I'll guarantee that because I will have done the work. And I can stand behind my work. If I have to stand behind somebody else's work, I'm asking for trouble. And that's the position that God finds himself in. And from a spiritual standpoint, God has a problem. And his problem is, we make lousy partners. We don't have anything good to bring to the table before God regenerates us. I mean, it says our righteousness are like filthy rags. There's nothing we can do uh, to change our state. And that's why salvation is free. That's why salvation is 100% God's work. Because he's making this promise that's not just for today. And not just for, gee, I'll regenerate you. I'm going to seal you with the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, It's a promise that goes on throughout our lives and has to do with eternity. And so... Uh, he does all the work so that he can guarantee that promise. If any part depends on us, God would have real troubles trying to guarantee that work. The work is completely his. It's just driven by belief. Now this is Paul writing here in Romans. John, who wrote the Gospel of John and 1 John, uh, talks about, he doesn't reference the guarantee per se, But he talks about the great work Christ does just based on our belief. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. We get new life. And then in 1 John, he takes the same subject, but talks in terms of the fact we can know. And part of the reason we can know is... It, we're, not, we're not part of that solution. There was no chance for us to muck it up. It's, what's God, it's what God has provided for us. So we can know that we have eternal life because he has done all the work. And we can know on our best day that the things that we do, that we're excited about, those are things we are offering as a service to God in gratitude for the work he's done. Not to try to contribute to it, but to praise him and lift his name up. And we can know on our worst day that we remain secure in God's guarantee because he's done all the work. You know, Paul ends his letter on that note. And he says, um, where should I start? I'm going to start in verse 20. 
and read to 25. And he says, talking about Abraham, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why, quote, it was credited to him as righteousness. Then Paul does us a favor and applies this right to us. And he says, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him, Abraham, alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now those are some words to keep in mind on those dark days when doubts creep in and life just doesn't feel right. You're disappointed and discouraged. Those verses are good ones to remember. There's an additional point I'd like to pull from this and and point and direct your attention to. And it's sort of keying off of the notion that God had power to do what he promised. Paul in Philippians, talking about God and his promises, uh, writes this. He talks about the fact that our citizenship is in heaven now that we are his. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Tremendous power he's talking about, at least as I look at my body (laughs) and what has to be done to transform this thing. Uh, (laughs) But a tremendous promise and power in the future that, you know, what we struggle through, the, the scars that we take on ourselves, uh, the dirty things we spiritually sort of clog ourselves up with. And God's going to take all this and transform us uh, when he comes uh, or when we, we die between now, uh, if, if that doesn't happen first. But if you look, he's talking about that power. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control... And I thought about this particular reference because of the way it's stated. Because of this last week, we've seen a terrible hurricane uh, hit one part of the country. And we, didn't, we didn't, aren't suffering under quite the same things, not near the same things that New Jersey and New York are. But you think of the people that have died. You think of the homes that have been uh, completely leveled and the people that are trying to struggle without gasoline, without warm, dry clothing, uh, and, and it is, uh, you can really get sad. Uh, I know Deb was talking about the fact she's originally from New York, and, uh, you know, even in California, her heart is, is bleeding for uh, place, places where she knows and has been and, and grew up, but uh, we, we all have that to some, some degree. But God has, a pow- has the power that's enabled him to bring everything under his control. And we have to say that everything, even like a disaster like that, is something that God has control over. And we should be praying for what he's doing through that. Uh, we also have a week coming up that has uh, 
you know, some, some things that have us kind of on, on the edge of our seat with an election. And um, God has everything under his control. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven. It's sort of like we have a green card or a visitor's visa here now. Uh, and, and we've got to be looking for that. We've got to be looking for the spiritual answers, the spiritual issues, and the spiritual concerns because uh, whatever's going to happen is going to fit right into what God's trying to do as, as the future unfolds for us. And we don't know what that is. But we do know that we're citizens of heaven. We do know we're going to be transformed. And we know God has a lot of work he wants to get done here and now. Our spiritual well-being is based not on what we do, not on what happens out here anywhere, but our spiritual well-being is based on a promise that we know is true because God is faithful and true and God has done the work. Nothing else is can mess up his plans. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love him, follow him, to learn from him, to let him lead us and change our lives. We are his disciples and he is our rabbi. He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.